Part 3, Chapter 8 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 3, Chapter 8 She asked herself as she walked along, What am I going to say? How shall I begin? And as she went on, she recognised the thickets, the trees, the sea rushes on the hill, the chateau yonder. All the sensations of her first tenderness came back to her, and her poor, aching heart opened out amorously. A warm wind blew in her face. The melting snow fell drop by drop from the buds to the grass. She entered, as she used to, through the small park gate. She reached the avenue bordered by a double row of dense lime trees. They were swaying their long, whispering branches to and fro. The dogs in their kennels all barked, and the noise of their voices resounded, but brought out no one. She went up the large straight staircase with wooden balusters that led to the corridor paved with dusty flags, into which several doors in a row opened, as in a monastery or an inn. He was at the top, right at the end, on the left. When she placed her fingers on the lock, her strength suddenly deserted her. She was afraid almost wished he would not be there, though this was her only hope, her last chance of salvation. She collected her thoughts for one moment, and strengthening herself by the feeling of present necessity, went in. He was in front of the fire, both his feet on the mantelpiece, smoking a pipe. "'What, is it you?' he said, getting up hurriedly. "'Yes, it is I, Rodolphe. I should like to ask your advice.' and despite all her efforts, it was impossible for her to open her lips. "'You have not changed. You are charming as ever.' "'Oh,' she replied bitterly, "'they are poor charms since you disdained them.' Then he began a long explanation of his conduct, excusing himself in vague terms, in default of being able to invent better. She yielded to his words, still more to his voice and the sight of him, so that she pretended to believe, or perhaps believed, in the pretext he gave for their rupture. This was a secret on which depended the honour, the very life of a third person. No matter, she said, looking at him sadly. I have suffered much. He replied philosophically, such is life. Has life, Emma went on, been good to you, at least, since our separation? Oh, neither good nor bad. Perhaps it would have been better never to have parted. Yes, perhaps. You think so, she said, drawing nearer, and she sighed. Oh, Rodolphe, if you but knew, I loved you so. It was then that she took his hand, and they remained some time, their fingers intertwined, like that first day at the show. With a gesture of pride, he struggled against this emotion, but sinking upon his breast, she said to him, How did you think I could live without you? One cannot lose the habit of happiness. I was desolate. I thought I should die. I will tell you all about that, and you will see. And you, you fled from me. For all the three years he had carefully avoided her in consequence of that natural cowardice that characterises the stronger sex. Emma went on with dainty little nods, more coaxing than an amorous kitten. You love others, confess it. Oh, I understand them, dear. I excuse them. 
You probably seduced them as you seduced me. You are indeed a man. You have everything to make one love you. But we'll begin again, won't we? We will love one another. See, I'm laughing. I'm happy. Oh, speak. And she was charming to see, with her eyes in which trembled a tear, like the rain of a storm in a blue corolla. He had drawn her upon his knees, and with the back of his hand was caressing her smooth hair, where in the twilight was mirrored like a golden arrow one last ray of the sun. She bent down her brow. At last he kissed her on the eyelids quite gently with the tips of his lips. Why, you've been crying. What for? She burst into tears. Rodolphe thought this was an outburst of her love. As she did not speak, he took this silence for a last remnant of resistance, and then he cried out, Oh, forgive me, you're the only one who pleases me. I was imbecile and cruel. I love you. I will love you always. What is it? Tell me. He was kneeling by her. Well, I am ruined, Rodolphe. You must lend me three thousand francs. But, but, said he, getting up slowly, while his face assumed a grave expression. You know, she went on quickly, that my husband had placed his whole fortune at a notary's. He ran away. So we borrowed. The patients don't pay us. Moreover, the settling of the estate is not yet done. We shall have the money later on. But today, for want of three thousand francs, we are to be sold up. It is to be at once, this very moment, and counting upon your friendship, I have come to you. Ah, thought Rodolphe, turning very pale. That was what she came for. At last, he said with a calm air, Dear madam, I have not got them. He did not lie. If he had had them, he would, no doubt, have given them. Although it is generally disagreeable to do such fine things, a demand for money being, of all the winds that blow upon love, the coldest and most destructive. First she looked at him for some moments. You have not got them, she repeated several times. You have not got them. I ought to have spared myself this last shame. You never loved me. You are no better than the others. She was betraying, ruining herself. Rodolphe interrupted her, declaring he was hard up himself. Ah, I pity you, said Emma. Yes, very much and fixing her eyes upon an embossed carabine that shot against its panoply. But when one is so poor, one doesn't have silver on the butt of one's gun. One doesn't buy a clock inlaid with tortoise shell, she went on, pointing to a boule timepiece, nor silver gilt whistles for one's whips, and she touched them, nor charms for one's watch. Oh, he wants for nothing, even to a liqueur stand in his room, for you love yourself, you live well, you have a chateau, farms, woods. You go hunting. You travel to Paris. Why, if it were but that, she cried, taking up two studs from the mantelpiece. But the least of these trifles, one can get money for them. Oh, I do not want them. Keep them. And she threw the two links away from her, their gold chain breaking as it struck against the wall. But I, I would have given you everything. I would have sold all, worked for you with my hands. I would have begged on the high roads for a smile. A look to hear you say thanks. And you sit there quietly in your armchair as if you had not made me suffer enough already. 
But for you, and you know it, I might have lived happily. What made you do it? Was it a bet? Yet you loved me. You said so. And but a moment since, ah, it would have been better to have driven me away. My hands are hot with your kisses, and there is the spot on the carpet where at my knees you swore an eternity of love. You made me believe you. For two years you held me in the most magnificent, the sweetest dream. Eh? Our plans for the journey, do you remember? Oh, your letter, your letter, it tore my heart. And then when I come back to him, to him, rich, happy, free, to implore the help the first stranger would give, a suppliant, and bringing back to him all my tenderness, he repulses me, because it would cost him three thousand francs. I haven't got them, replied Rodolphe with that perfect calm with which resigned rage covers itself as with a shield. She went out. The walls trembled, the ceiling was crushing her, and she passed back through the long alley, stumbling against the heaps of dead leaves scattered by the wind. At last she reached the ha-ha hedge in front of the gate. She broke her nails against the lock in her haste to open it. Then a hundred steps farther on, breathless, almost falling, she stopped. And now, turning round, she once more saw the impassive chateau with the park, the gardens, the three courts and all the windows of the façade. She remained lost in stupor, and having no more consciousness of herself than through the beating of her arteries that she seemed to hear bursting forth like a deafening music filling all the fields. The earth beneath her feet was more yielding than the sea, and the furrow seemed to her immense brown waves breaking into foam. Everything in her head of memories, ideas, went off at once like a thousand pieces of fireworks. She saw her father, the rose closet, their room at home, another landscape. Madness was coming upon her. She grew afraid and managed to recover herself in a confused way, it is true, for she did not in the least remember the cause of the terrible condition she was in, that is to say, the question of money. She suffered only in her love and felt her soul passing from her in this memory as wounded men dying feel their life ebb from their bleeding wounds. Night was falling, crows were flying about. Suddenly it seemed to her that fiery spheres were exploding in the air like fulminating balls when they strike and were whirling, whirling to melt at last upon the snow between the branches of the trees. In the midst of each of them appeared the face of Rodolphe. They multiplied and drew near her, penetrating her. It all disappeared. She recognised the lights of the houses that shone through the fog. Now her situation, like an abyss, rose up before her. She was panting as if her heart would burst. Then, in an ecstasy of heroism that made her almost joyous, she ran down the hill, crossed the cow plank, the footpath, the alley, the market, and reached the chemist's shop. She was about to enter, but at the sound of the bell someone might come, and slipping in by the gate, holding her breath, feeling her way along the walls, she went as far as the door of the kitchen, where a candle stuck on the stove was burning. Justin, in his shirt-sleeves, was carrying out a dish. Ah, they're dining. I will wait. He returned. She tapped at the window. He went out. The key, the one for upstairs, where he keeps the... 
What? And he looked at her, astonished at the pallor of her face that stood out white against the black background of the night. She seemed to him extraordinarily beautiful and majestic as a phantom. Without understanding what she wanted, he had the presentiment of something terrible. But she went on quickly in a love voice, in a sweet, melting voice. I want it. Give it to me. As the partition wall was thin, they could hear the clatter of the forks on the plates in the dining room. She pretended that she wanted to kill the rats that kept her from sleeping. I must tell the master. No, stay. Then, with an indifferent air, Oh, it's not worthwhile. I'll tell him presently. Come, light me upstairs. She entered the corridor into which the laboratory door opened. Against the wall was a key labelled Cafarnaum. Justin, called the druggist impatiently. Let us go up. And he followed her. The key turned in the lock, and she went straight to the third shelf. So well did her memory guide her. Seized the blue jar, tore out the cork, plunged in her hand, and withdrawing it full of a white powder, she began eating it. Stop, he cried, rushing at her. Hush, someone will come. He was in despair, was calling out, Say nothing, or all the blame will fall on your master. Then she went home, suddenly calmed, and with something of the serenity of one that had performed a duty. When Charles, distracted by the news of the distraint, returned home, Emma had just gone out. He cried aloud, wept, fainted, but she did not return. Where could she be? He sent Felicite to Homais, to Monsieur Tuvache, to Lerreux, to the Lion d'Or, everywhere, and in the intervals of his agony he saw his reputation destroyed, their fortune lost, Berta's future ruined. By what? Not a word. He waited till six in the evening. At last, unable to bear it any longer, and fancying she had gone to Rouen, he set out along the high road, walked a mile, met no one, again waited and returned home. She had come back. What was the matter? Why? Explain to me. She sat down at her writing table and wrote a letter, which she sealed slowly, adding the date and the hour. Then she said in a solemn tone, You are to read it tomorrow. Till then, I pray you, do not ask me a single question. No, not one. But, oh, leave me. She lay down full length on her bed. A bitter taste that she felt in her mouth awakened her. She saw Charles and again closed her eyes. She was studying herself curiously to see if she were not suffering. But no, nothing as yet. She heard the ticking of the clock, the crackling of the fire, and Charles breathing as he stood upright by her bed. Ah, it is but a little thing, death, she thought. I shall fall asleep and all will be over. She drank a mouthful of water and turned to the wall. The frightful taste of ink continued. I am thirsty, ah, oh, so thirsty, she sighed. What is it, said Charles, who was handing her a glass. It is nothing. Open the window. I am choking. She was seized with a sickness so sudden that she had hardly time to draw out her handkerchief from under the pillow. Take it away, she said quickly. Throw it away. He spoke to her. She did not answer. She lay motionless, afraid that the slightest movement might make her vomit. But she felt an icy cold creeping from her feet to her heart. 
Ah, it is beginning, she murmured. What did you say? She turned her head from side to side with a gentle movement full of agony, while constantly opening her mouth as if something very heavy were weighing upon her tongue. At eight o'clock the vomiting began again. Charles noticed that at the bottom of the basin there was a sort of white sediment sticking to the sides of the porcelain. This is extraordinary, very singular, he repeated. But she said in a firm voice, No, you are mistaken. Then gently and almost as caressing her, he passed his hand over her stomach. She uttered a sharp cry. He fell back, terror-stricken. Then she began to groan, faintly at first. Her shoulders were shaken by a strong shuddering, and she was growing paler than the sheets in which her clenched fingers buried themselves. Her unequal pulse was now almost imperceptible. Drops of sweat oozed from her bluish face that seemed as if rigid in the exhalations of a metallic vapour. Her teeth chattered, her dilated eyes looked vaguely about her, and to all questions she replied only with a shake of the head. She even smiled once or twice. Gradually her moaning grew louder. A hollow shriek burst from her. She pretended she was better and said she would get up presently. But she was seized with convulsions and cried out, Oh my God, it is horrible! He threw himself on his knees by her bed. Tell me, what have you eaten? Answer, for heaven's sake! And he looked at her with a tenderness in his eyes such as she had never seen. Well, there, there, she said in a faint voice. He flew to the writing table, tore open the seal and read aloud, Accuse no one. He stopped, passed his hand across his eyes and read it over again. What? Help! Help! He could only keep repeating the word, Poisoned! Poisoned! Felicite ran to Homais, who proclaimed it in the marketplace. Madame Lefrancois heard it at the lion door. Some got up to go and tell their neighbours, and all night the village was on the alert. Distraught, faltering, reeling, Charles wandered about the room. He knocked against the furniture tore his hair, and the chemist never believed that there could be so terrible a sight. He went home to write to Monsieur Carnivet and to Dr. La Riviere. He lost his head and made more than fifteen rough copies. Hippolyte went to Neufchatel, and Justin so spurred Bovary's horse that he left it foundered and three parts dead by the hill at Bois-Guillaume. Charles tried to look up his medical dictionary, but could not read it. The lines were dancing. Be calm, said the druggist. We have only to administer a powerful antidote. What is the poison? Charles showed him the letter. It was arsenic. Very well, said Homais. We must make an analysis. For he knew that in cases of poisoning an analysis must be made, and the other, who did not understand, answered, Oh, do anything, save her. Then going back to her, he sank upon the carpet and lay there with his head leaning against the edge of her bed, sobbing. Don't cry, she said to him. Soon I shall not trouble you any more. Why was it? Who drove you to it? She replied. It had to be, my dear. Weren't you happy? Is it my fault? I did all I could. Yes, that is true. You are good, you. And she passed her hand slowly over his hair. The sweetness of this sensation deepened his sadness. He felt his whole being dissolving in despair at the thought that he must lose her, just when she was confessing more love for him than ever. 
and he could think of nothing. He did not know. He did not dare. The urgent need for some immediate resolution gave the finishing stroke to the turmoil of his mind. So she had done, she thought, with all the treachery and meanness and numberless desires that had tortured her. She hated no one now. A twilight dimness was settling upon her thoughts, and of all earthly noises Emma heard none but the intermittent lamentations of this poor heart, sweet and indistinct like the echo of a symphony dying away. Bring me the child, she said, raising herself on her elbow. You're not worse, are you? asked Charles. No, no. The child, serious and still half asleep, was carried in on the servant's arm in her long white nightgown from which her bare feet peeped out. She looked wonderingly at the disordered room and half-closed her eyes, dazzled by the candles burning on the table. They reminded her, no doubt, of the morning of New Year's Day and mid-Lent, when thus awakened early by candlelight she came to her mother's bed to fetch her presents, for she began saying, "'But where is it, Mama?' and as everybody was silent, but I can't see my little stocking. Felicite held her over the bed while she still kept looking towards the mantelpiece. Has nurse taken it? she asked. And at this name that carried her back to the memory of her adulteries and her calamities, Madame Bovary turned away her head as at the loathing of another bitterer poison that rose to her mouth. But Berta remained perched on the bed. Oh, how big your eyes are, Mamma! How pale you are! How hot you are! Her mother looked at her. I am frightened, cried the child, recoiling. Emma took her hand to kiss it. The child struggled. That will do. Take her away, cried Charles, who was sobbing in the alcove. Then the symptoms ceased for a moment. She seemed less agitated, and at every insignificant word, at every respiration a little more easy, he regained hope. At last, when Canavet came in, he threw himself into his arms. Ah, tis you, thanks, you are good, but she is better. See, look at her. His colleague was by no means of this opinion, and, as he said to himself, never beating about the bush, he prescribed an emetic in order to empty the stomach completely. She soon began vomiting blood. Her lips became drawn. Her limbs were convulsed, her whole body covered with brown spots, and her pulse slipped beneath the fingers like a stretched thread, like a harp-string nearly breaking. After this, she began to scream horribly. She cursed the poison, railed at it, and implored it to be quick, and thrust away with her stiffened arms everything that Charles, in more agony than herself, tried to make her drink. He stood up, his handkerchief to his lips, with a rattling sound in his throat, weeping and choked by sobs that shook his whole body. Felicite was running hither and thither in the room. Homay, motionless, uttered great sighs, and Monsieur Carnivet, always retaining his self-command, nevertheless began to feel uneasy. The devil! She has been purged, and from the moment that the cause ceases... The effect must cease, said Homay. That is evident. Oh, save her, cried Bovary. And, without listening to the chemist, who was still venturing the hypothesis, it is perhaps a salutary paroxysm, Canivet was about to administer some theriac when they heard the cracking of a whip. 
All the windows rattled, and a post-chaise drawn by three horses abreast, up to their ears in mud, drove at a gallop round the corner of the market. It was Dr. La Riviere. The apparition of a god would not have caused more commotion. Bovary raised his hands, Carnivet stopped short, and Homais pulled off his skull-cap long before the doctor had come in. He belonged to that great school of surgery begotten of Bichat, to that generation now extinct of philosophical practitioners who, loving their art with a fanatical love, exercised it with enthusiasm and wisdom. Everyone in his hospital trembled when he was angry, and his students so revered him that they tried, as soon as they were themselves in practice, to imitate him as much as possible, so that in all the towns about they were found wearing his long-wadded merino overcoat and black frock coat, whose buttoned cuffs slightly covered his brawny hands, very beautiful hands, and that never knew gloves, as though to be more ready to plunge into suffering. Disdainful of honours, of titles and of academies, like one of the old knight hospitaliers, generous, fatherly to the poor and practising virtue without believing in it, he would almost have passed for a saint if the keenness of his intellect had not caused him to be feared as a demon. His glance, more penetrating than his bisteries, looked straight into your soul and dissected every lie athwart all assertions and all reticences. And thus he went along, full of that debonair majesty that is given by the consciousness of great talent, of fortune, and of forty years of a laborious and irreproachable life. He frowned as soon as he had passed the door, when he saw the cadaverous face of Emma stretched out on her back with her mouth open. Then, while apparently listening to Carnivet, he rubbed his fingers up and down beneath his nostrils and repeated, Good, good but he made a slow gesture with his shoulders. Bovary watched him. They looked at one another. And this man, accustomed as he was to the sight of pain, could not keep back a tear that fell on his shirt frill. He tried to take Carnivet into the next room. Charles followed him. She's very ill, isn't she? If we put on synapisms, anything, I'll think of something. You who have saved so many... Charles caught him in both his arms and gazed at him wildly, imploringly, half fainting against his breast. Come, my poor fellow, courage. There is nothing more to be done. And Dr. La Riviere turned away. You are going? I will come back. He went out only to give an order to the coachman with Monsieur Carnivet, who did not care either to have Emma die under his hands. The chemist rejoined them on the place. He could not by temperament keep away from celebrities, so he begged Monsieur La Riviere to do him the signal honour of accepting some breakfast. He sent quickly to the lion door for some pigeons, to the butchers for all the cutlets that were to be had, to Duvache for cream, and to Lesti Boudard for eggs, and the druggist himself aided in the preparations, while Madame Homais was saying as she pulled together the strings of her jacket, You must excuse us, sir, for in this poor place, when one hasn't been told the night before. Wine glasses, whispered Homais. If only we were in town, we could fall back upon stuffed trotters. Be quiet. Sit down, doctor. He thought fit, after the first few mouthfuls, to give some details as to the catastrophe. We first had a feeling of cecicity in the pharynx, then intolerable pains at the epigastrium, superpurgation, coma. 
But how did she poison herself? I don't know, Doctor, and I don't even know where she can have procured the Arsenius acid. Justin, who was just bringing in a pile of plates, began to tremble. What's the matter, said the chemist. At this question, the young man dropped the whole lot on the ground with a crash. Imbecile, cried Homme, awkward, lout, blockhead, confounded ass. But suddenly, controlling himself, I wished, Doctor, to make an analysis, and primo, I delicately introduced a tube. You would have done better, said the physician, to introduce your fingers into her throat. His colleague was silent, having just before privately received a severe lecture about his emetic, so that this good Canavet, so arrogant and so verbose at the time of the clubfoot, was today very modest. He smiled without ceasing in an approving manner. Homais, dilated in amphitryonic pride, and the affecting thought of Bovary vaguely contributed to his pleasure by a kind of egotistic reflex upon himself. Then the presence of the doctor transported him. He displayed his erudition, cited pell-mell, cantharides, upas, the manchineal, vipers. I have even read that various persons have found themselves under toxological symptoms and, as it were, thunder-stricken by black pudding that had been subjected to a too vehement fumigation. At least this was stated in a very fine report drawn up by one of our pharmaceutical chiefs, one of our masters, the illustrious Cadet de Gassicourt. Madame Homais reappeared, carrying one of those shaky machines that are heated with spirits of wine, for Homais liked to make his coffee at table, having moreover torrified it, pulverised it and mixed it himself. Saccharum, doctor, he said, offering the sugar. Then he had all his children brought down, anxious to have the physician's opinion on their constitutions. At last, Monsieur La Riviere was about to leave when Madame Homais asked for a consultation about her husband. He was making his blood too thick by going to sleep every evening after dinner. Oh, it isn't his blood that's too thick, said the physician. And smiling a little at his unnoticed joke, the doctor opened the door. But the chemist's shop was full of people. He had the greatest difficulty in getting rid of Monsieur Tuvache, who feared his spouse would get inflammation of the lungs because she was in the habit of spitting on the ashes, then of Monsieur Binet, who sometimes experienced sudden attacks of great hunger, and of Madame Caron, who suffered from tinglings, of Lerreur, who had vertigo, of Lestie Boudoir, who had rheumatism, and of Madame Le Francois, who had heartburn. At last the three horses started, and it was the general opinion that he had not shown himself at all obliging. Public attention was distracted by the appearance of Monsieur Bonissien, who was going across the market with the holy oil. Homais, as was due to his principles, compared priests to ravens attracted by the odour of death. The sight of an ecclesiastic was personally disagreeable to him, for the cassock made him think of the shroud, and he detested the one from some fear of the other. Nevertheless, not shrinking from what he called his mission, he returned to Bovary's in company with Carnivet, whom Monsieur La Riviere, before leaving, had strongly urged to make this visit, and he would, but for his wife's objections, have taken his two sons with him, in order to accustom them to great occasions, that this might be a lesson, for example a solemn picture, that should remain in their heads later on. The room when they went in was full of mournful solemnity. On the work table, covered over with a white cloth, 
there were five or six small bowls of cotton in a silver dish near a large crucifix between two lighted candles. Emma, her chin sunken upon her breast, had her eyes inordinately wide open, and her poor hands wandered over the sheets with that hideous and soft movement of the dying that seems as if they wanted already to cover themselves with the shroud. Pale as a statue and with eyes red as fire, Charles, not weeping, stood opposite her at the foot of the bed, while the priest, bending one knee, was muttering words in a low voice. She turned her face slowly and seemed filled with joy on seeing suddenly the violet stole, no doubt finding again, in the midst of a temporary lull in her pain, the lost voluptuousness of her first mystical transports with the visions of eternal beatitude that were beginning. The priest rose to take the crucifix. Then she stretched forward her neck as one who is athirst, and gluing her lips to the body of the man-god, she pressed upon it with all her expiring strength the fullest kiss of love that she had ever given. Then he recited the miseriata and the indulgientem, dipped his right thumb in the oil, and began to give extreme unction. First upon the eyes that had so coveted all worldly pomp, then upon the nostrils that had been greedy of the warm breeze and amorous odours, then upon the mouth that had uttered lies, that had curled with pride and cried out in lewdness, then upon the hands that had delighted in sensual touches, and finally upon the soles of the feet, so swift of yore when she was running to satisfy her desires, and that would now walk no more. The curé wiped his fingers, threw the bit of cotton dipped in oil into the fire, and came and sat down by the dying woman, to tell her that she must now blend her sufferings with those of Jesus Christ, and abandon herself to the divine mercy. Finishing his exhortations, he tried to place in her hand a blessed candle, symbol of the celestial glory with which she was soon to be surrounded. Emma, too weak, could not close her fingers, and the taper but for Monsieur Brunissien would have fallen to the ground. However, she was not quite so pale, and her face had an expression of serenity as if the sacrament had cured her. The priest did not fail to point this out. He even explained to Bovary that the Lord sometimes prolonged the life of persons when he thought it meet for their salvation, and Charles remembered the day when, so near death, she had received the communion. Perhaps there was no need to despair, he thought. In fact, she looked around her slowly as one awakening from a dream. Then, in a distinct voice, she asked for her looking-glass and remained some time bending over it until the big tears fell from her eyes. Then she turned away her head with a sigh and fell back upon the pillows. Her chest soon began panting rapidly. The whole of her tongue protruded from her mouth. Her eyes, as they rolled, grew paler, like the two globes of a lamp that is going out, so that one might have thought her already dead, but for the fearful labouring of her ribs, shaken by violent breathing, as if the soul was struggling to free itself. Felicite knelt down before the crucifix, and the druggist himself slightly bent his knees, while Monsieur Carnevet looked out vaguely at the place. Bonicien had again begun to pray his face bowed against the edge of the bed, his long black cassock trailing behind him in the room. 
Giles was on the other side, on his knees, his arms outstretched towards Emma. He had taken her hands and pressed them, shuddering at every beat of her heart, as at the shaking of a falling ruin. As the death rattle became stronger, the priest prayed faster. His prayers mingled with the stifled sobs of Bovary, and sometimes all seemed lost in the muffled murmur of the Latin syllables that tolled like a passing bell. Suddenly on the pavement was heard a loud noise of clogs and the clattering of a stick, and a voice rose, a raucous voice, that sang, Maids in the warmth of a summer day, dream of love and of love always. Emma raised herself like a galvanised corpse, her hair undone, her eyes fixed, staring. When the sickle blades have been Nanette gathering years of corn, Vassas bending down, my queen, to the earth where they were born. The blind man, she cried, and Emma began to laugh an atrocious, frantic, despairing laugh, thinking she saw the hideous face of the poor wretch that stood out against the eternal night like a menace. The wind is strong this summer day, her petticoat has flown away. She fell back upon the mattress in a convulsion. They all drew near. She was dead. End of part three, chapter eight.